I'd read that when an elephant looks as if it's dying, the other elephants in the herd do anything and everything they can to keep the elephant alive, bringing him or her food, spraying them with water, touching and stroking with their trunks, even trying to make love. There was that quality about us, determined that no one else was going to die. We had to make sure each other lived. That's certainly how I felt about it. I knew that for him, suicide was enough of an option for him to talk about it. And I wanted to obliterate that option from his world, for him to feel that life was worth living. I wanted him to open up to the world, travel, meet new people, escape the pressure from his parents, just for a while, as he was certain to go back there. It was in his blood his lungs, his genes. He needed to go away long enough to find himself so that when he came back, he was choosing the farm from a wholehearted perspective. Hello there, my fellow sophisticated creatives. Welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. Ozzy is in the studio with me. He's a little antsy because there's sunshine and we haven't gone out for a walk yet, but hopefully he, he will behave. This is episode seven of season two. In today's podcast, I'm having a discussion with a nonfiction author from the UK, originally from Yorkshire. She now lives in Sussex. Gosh, I don't get to say that often. <laughs> Before writing No Place to Lie, she was a well-known lawyer, mediator, author, and trainer. She's retired from Gordon's Partnership, LLP. No Place to Lie is not her first publication. She's written other novels. I, won't, I shouldn't say novels. Other publications. Um, with respect to her legal training. She loves dogs as much as I do, and she's had a tough decision of breaking the news to her dog, Ziggy, that he is not going to be the star of her YouTube channel, Hello, It's Better to Talk. From across the pond, where I understand they've just had a little bit of snow, Helen Garlic, welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room on Vancouver Island. Hi there, Joe. It's just, it's absolutely lovely to be here. I mean, I can, yeah, I feel as if I can hardly claim that what we've got is snow as it's just a few little, tiny little flakes. But for some reason, uh, our Wi-Fi went down an hour ago. So I'm so pleased it's come back up again. We blame everyone snow, even though, it, you know, we've hardly had any. Anyway, great to be here. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm sure um, in Canada, those who live on the East Coast, look at us on the West Coast and laugh when we kind of go in a panic because we start seeing the white stuff falling from the sky. <laughs> <laughs> so the, you, oh, I can't imagine the, how do I say, I don't, I want to say excitement. I want to say, uh, I don't want to say apprehension, but your book was just released Thursday, February 4th. 
And I've been wondering, how's the reception been? How's the feedback been? Um, Well, you know, it's a funny thing, uh, launching a book in the middle of a pandemic and and lockdown. So there's no parties, um, there's no book signings, everything takes place in our home, which is in the Sussex countryside on, on the edge of the South Downs. So there's nothing kind of physical happening, but mentally there's been a lot of ha- things happening for me and emotionally, I suppose. It's been the culmination of 40 years to make a promise that I, to meet a promise that I made to myself back in 1981 to to write this book. So I'm so happy I've got it done. I'm kind of, you know, <laughs> so terrified about his reception to it to an extent, excited when people write to me and I've had so many emails, messages, um, all sorts of things. I, this book seems to be touching people incredibly deeply, um, for which I feel blessed and honoured. So I, I'm loving the emotional emotional reaction. Um, and in, in fact, what's happened over here in the UK is that although it was launched on Thursday, um, by yesterday, all of the Amazon stocks had run out. So uh, on Amazon, it's showing that it won't be, if you order today, you won't get it until March. So that's kind of incredible. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, you're very, you're honest. And I'd say, I like to say the word raw. Mm-hmm. with your emotions and um let's get let's get into no place to lie for sure yeah sure now, it is a memoir mm-hmm. but it's would you say it's also a little bit of creative nonfiction because there are chapters in both your father's point of view and he's no longer with us and david's point of view who who yeah we're going to get into that um were those chapters difficult to write and did you have any sort of reference materials to draw upon um well you know I think I mean I also wrote a chapter from my mum's point of view too and uh then there's a chapter about the kind of love interest of the story a guy who I've called Nick Kane in 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 the book um but I, I suppose I had a very kind of I mean, I was the only survivor in our family between myself and, and my sibling, my younger brother, David. And my parents relied on me a lot. And we had a kind of close relationship. And obviously what happened to David, we talked about a lot. And I I really did understand their their viewpoints. So I I think from their perspectives, that felt like it was you know, but quite accurate. And then there, I've done an, I've done a, also a, a chapter from my younger brother's viewpoint in the few moments before he died, which obviously has come out of my imagination. Um, but when I wrote it, I, this may sound weird, but I really felt as if I was channeling my brother. And then later on, Joe, I recorded an audio book. Um, in, I, I did it myself because I appeared on uh, a program over here called Woman's Hour on, on Radio 4. And my publishers, after that, we had such an extraordinary reaction from it. After the first time I publicly talked about these secrets that uh, my publisher said, you've got to do the book, Helen. So I went, oh, OK. <laughs> uh, so when I was recording that chapter, the chapter about my brother, um, funny enough, there was a photographer in the building, in the audio um, recording building, and she... 
she was watching me and the producer was there and I spoke this chapter from my brother's perspective. I didn't falter. I didn't have to redo any of it. And again, it felt like he was kind of coming through me. Um, and when I looked up and I finished the chapter, I looked up to the producer and this lovely girl who's the photographer and they're both crying and they wow. said, oh, that's that was magnificent. So I, you know, I mean, there are there are many levels, aren't there, that we can connect with people other than the pure physical. And I think it's so on. I, you know, I don't even know have the words for it, whether it's a soul level or a spirit level. I really felt as if I was very strongly connected to my brother. And it's for him that I've written yeah. this book. So, you know, um, I'm I'm grateful to have had that connection. And, you know, he kind of pops in and out of my life from time to time. I um not not that often nowadays, but it's very weird when he's here because I can smell him. <laughs> um, oh, oh. I'm saying that as, you know, a lawyer with 35 years experience. So uh, I'm kind of, yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, he he's kind of sometimes around, which is really nice. Which we're we'll get into your book, and I think that'll even have more impact once our listeners understand what No Place to Lie is about. Mm -hmm. uh, now you you waited. You said 1981 mm -hmm. that you made the promise to your brother David that you were going to write this book. That's right. Yes. I mean, I was actually over in the States um, on the 1st of March, 1981. Um, in fact, I visited Vancouver. I love Vancouver so much. I didn't get to visit Vancouver Island where you're based, Joe. Uh, but I was and at, at that point on the 1st of March, 1981, I was in St. Louis. I was in, um, in, in uh, on the banks of Mississippi and having lunch with some friends. And I had a call from my father in Yorkshire, which is in the north of England. And my father was distraught um, because he had to break to me the news that my younger brother David had died. Um, and I'd been in a, in the States for about two months. Um, I was 22 then and my and David was would have been 20, not quite 21. Um, so I tell the story about how that happened and in in no place to lie but I you know came back home as soon as I as soon as I could and um then met up with my parents and and my father found my father had found my brother in a remote country mansion um on the on the 1st of March um 1981 and he my my brother was caretaking for this for, for this mansion and my dad had gone over after they'd been on holiday. Um, you know, my mum had been on holiday. So they went over and they were planning to have lunch with him. Um, and tragically, my father found my brother dead. Um, and he, you know, the, the back door was open. Um, and my, my, there, were, there were a lot of bot empty bottles. There'd been some drinking. My brother was by the side of a sofa and above something that he, my father initially thought was a stick. Now, trigger warning here, which I probably should say, you know, this is, this was the most devastating thing. And the stick wasn't a stick, but it was a shotgun. Uh, so my father could not, and I don't think ever, accepted during his life that my brother might have taken his own life. Uh, and he, so he maintained it was either an accident or 
that somebody had broken in and there'd been a struggle and my brother had died that way. Um, so there was a there was a, an investigation by the police here and then um, and then there was a, the first inquest and in the first inquest um, the result of that was a verdict of suicide which my father felt was a stain on my brother's character, a stain on the family, and it couldn't possibly have ever happened that way. And we had to over, you know, we had to appeal against it and get a decision which he felt would be right. So, um, you know, during that year, again, which I talk about in the book, I, I'd found various things out. Um, I ended up having a relationship with my brother's best friend who was a sheep farmer down in the west country in devon um and uh he i've called him in the book nick kane um nick told me that he and my brother had talked about taking their own lives because they each had a difficult relationship with their fathers uh so it was something that they talked about i mean you know they were young they were 20 um there yeah. and i think somebody told me later on joe i don't know if you've heard this as well that actually all the all the connections in between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere of the brain don't all come together until you're about 25 26 and so in your early 20s you kind of feel that you're immortal and so i think you know young men at that age are actually quite vulnerable um and I anyway, so they 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 had talked about it, and I became convinced that David had had taken his life. But I also knew, in a way, even though I was only twenty three, I knew that my dad needed to maintain that you know fiction, that belief to get him through his life, um, and my mum probably similarly. So I couldn't challenge it you know, openly, publicly while they were alive. Uh, my dad sadly died in nine, in 2014 and then my mum died in 2017. And uh, yeah. then I thought, okay, now is my chance to write the book because, you know, there's, they, they, it wouldn't hurt them. You know, they'd, they'd, they'd left this earth. Um, although my mother then uh, left another another secret which i had never seen coming at all so uh yeah. and i thought okay so i've got to write about that in the book and oh boy i you know i didn't know if i needed to write one book or two books or how it was all going to work so it took me a while to to work through the material and uh, and write the book well you you're um you're writing Oh, it's, it's very nice. It may sound weird, but when I started reading it, I felt a comfort because when I, I used to hate reading as a child. And then when I started reading, my influences were all UK authors. Really? Wow. Yeah. So when I started reading your book, it was that voice. I thought, I recognize this. Okay. Like it's, wow. I don't want to say that UK writers write differently from Canadian authors, but I, we, we do because we come from different surroundings, different influences. Mm -hmm. 
I guess what I'm trying to say is I remember I just I started reading it and I thought this feels good. This is this is this is it's this is comfort. This I don't want to say it's like chicken soup, but I thought this is good. Okay. Oh, lovely <laughs> feedback, Joe. Thank you. Thank you. Thinking about your book, I me- I what I remember on page 82, before you get your dog Cleo, which is a, a Gordon mm-hmm. setter, you write all the humans seem somehow at fault. David's death has shone a searchlight on our family, on everyone. You were grieving. Your brother, you know, your brother has taken your own his own life. Uh, your your parents, you know, I could just imagine the turmoil you're going mm-hmm. through, feeling the subject of whispers. Did you? I'm just wondering, did you? For I'm thinking in terms of closure. Did you ever kind of uncover why David did what he did? Yeah, yeah. I think writing the book um, became a bit of a quest for me to to sort out all the different threads and strands and think about, you know, why it might have happened for him. Um, I mean, I, I came up with 12 factors, which I've included at the at the end of the book. And, you know, the first one actually is isolation. Um, we have a really deep need. It's kind of hardwired into us as human beings to connect. It's, you know, we, we don't do very well when we're on our own. Um, and that's borne out by people who live, you know, the fact that people who live on their own tend to die younger. They may drink more, they may get ill more. It's, it's um, you know, we need to survive and thrive we need that that deep human connection and david was living in a very remote place um he was seeing my parents i think once a week um but i i'd you know hot-footed it to america i was i was actually desperate to get away from my family and and kind of start stretching my own wings and and um you know being myself and so i'd I'd had this this holiday started in new york went over to san francisco st louis i spent some time in in canada in vancouver so i was away for two months and i probably sent my brother one or two postcards and my parents you know maybe a few more but he he was on his own so that's you know it's a it's a it's it's a rubbish thing to have happen. And I think we're all at the moment actually feeling that particularly keenly. I mean, I just feel like I've got kind of empty arms syndrome. I, I need hugs. I need more hugs. I, you know, I'm yeah. lucky. I live, I live um, here with Tim and uh, my younger daughter who's 21 and at Leeds university has come back and in, in the holidays, you know, safely, but so I've seen her from time to time. But, you know, this is tough. This is a really tough endurance test that we're going through at the moment. And I think that when we come out on the other side, you know, sometimes people say when we we get back to being normal, but it's never going to be normal. Mm -hmm. It's just it's not it's not the new normal. It's the new new. And part of that will be appreciating the things that we had, you know, and that we had we've had to give up over over this time. So. Anyway, I think for David, isolation was a huge key. Um, I think there's also, you know, this whole thing about toxic masculinity and shame. And um, he did have a difficult relationship with my dad. 
Um, my dad was a very clever man, a lawyer. He'd gone to Cambridge. He, he was the first in his generation to, to go to university and he'd studied classics, so Greek and Latin, and then he became a solicitor and he set up his own practice. Yeah. Um, you know, he's a man of the mind, loved the arts, um, loved culture. My, my brother was more of a kind of practical person. He loved fishing. He loved looking at the stars through his telescope. He loved motorbikes. His main passion, actually, as he got older, was motorbikes. Um, and my father, I didn't I think didn't really accept who he was. You know, he w- was always wanting him to be something else than he, than he was. So that's hard yeah. as well. Um, yeah. But you know, there was an, there was another um, there was another thing that I only found out at my mum's funeral, which was from another friend of my brother's who we've kept in touch with over the years. And he told me, and he said, "I've never I've never said this to anybody before, Helen." But when uh, David and I were little and they were playing at Ivanhoe, they used to have these kind of games, dress up in armour and, you know, pretend to be knights and do all this stuff. And David said to him with a very clear and purposeful voice, I don't want to live after I'm 20. I don't want to get old. I don't like, I don't like old people. I don't like their smells. I don't like, I just, I don't want to have that. I don't want to be old which is huge isn't it and Christopher had um held that well for you know for the same period of time for for actually probably longer for over 50 years before he told me about it and he said I you know I just didn't as a boy I didn't know what to do with David telling me that and he he tried to you know he said oh don't be so silly but um he said I you know I always always remembered it so it, it in a way David had kind of decided even when he was quite young, that he was not going to be long on this planet. So, wow. you know, it's kind of pre, wow. pre, in a way, I always think that, you know, the voices in our head, our internal conversation is the most important voice that we have. You know, so it's the most, most important conversation we have. And for lots of us, we have some pretty rubbish inner voices going on, you know, that inner yeah. chat can be quite undermining and critical and so on but I think David's inner voice was telling him you know don't live beyond beyond being 20 and so that's and that's what happened jeez jeez you have also in this book some very just beautiful moments and the one that just there are even some of the small moments where when you return to the UK from the US and your David had borrowed your car and you mentioned about you, you get your car, you get in your car and you turn the key, which David had been driving and you feel mm-hmm. his presence. Can you share a, about that moment? Well, it was, it was a huge moment. Um, I had this little yellow Renault five um, car had a fun little gear stick uh, kind of just was on the uh, steering wheel just on on the left hand side and I can remember opening the car I mean the police would have taken their their fingerprints so I was kind of saying okay so the last person that was in this car was not the police and then it wasn't the police it would you know sorry it it wasn't David it would have been the police but nonetheless it just you know in the car and and uh 
got ready to turn the key, put the key in the ignition and turn it and feeling his presence um, there. And then suddenly he was there. He was sitting in the passenger seat next to me. Never saw him. But I, he, there was, a, he had a very distinct smell. We probably all do. I mean, we don't necessarily tune into it that much, do we? But it was kind of like motorbikes and fishing and and uh, that awful lynx, um, lynx thing that people used to used to spray on them. And a really powerful smell. It wasn't just a faded version of of him. It was just, you know, he was there. Um, so yeah. I kind. Turned turned towards the passenger seat and said, "Hello, David." Because it just seemed, you know, it seemed to be rude, like not to yeah. not to talk to him. And then, uh, and then, and then I set off, or or we set off, and I went to go and collect um, collect my dog, Cleo, who you've talked about, the Gordon Setter, who was my huge comfort at this time. She had the silkiest ears, um, and you know, dogs. I always feel dogs' default mechanism is uh, default mode is like happy, isn't it? You know, that's that they yeah. at base at root they are happy. So I knew that when I got clear, I could just kind of bury myself into her fur, and uh, she she'd be there for me. Um, and they they know when you need oh, comfort. Boy, don't they? Know. they don't they judge? They yeah. yeah. If you if yeah. you need it, they're there. They're they're kind of glued. To, to the side of your yeah. leg somehow <laughs> so, uh, and they kind of also bring themselves down a couple of gears don't they they just sort of get gentler I find or yeah I mean the, in the moments when I've really needed needed that comfort um the different dogs in my life um have provided that so I you know I I'm I'm definitely I love dogs I absolutely love dogs it's really nice that we have that connection <laughs> yes now, David talks with his best friend, mm-hmm. Nick. And, you know, he mentions about committing mm-hmm. suicide. And when the first coroner's inquest happened, Nick mentions this conversation to you, but you didn't, you didn't rev- you know, mention it to anyone at the inquest. And was that because you were trying to protect uh, the friendship you had with with Nick. Well, I think or... the thing was that um, I was never called in evidence to the first inquest, um, nor indeed to the second inquest. Um, but the, at the first inquest, it was it was really done in a hurry. Um, the first inquest was on a Friday. Um, it was in Retford in in Nottinghamshire, and the coroner had six cases to get through on that day. Uh, which is wow. a lot, huh? and um, you know, and I subsequently found out I this is something that my father had hidden from me, but that my father really did not like the coroner, who was a very um, sort of bumptious little man. I mean, my father did say that to him, but I, I didn't realize the kind of intensity of the dislike between the two of them. Um, and uh, he was very dismissive of my father. He did he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't call in evidence the uh, the pathologist um and the gun shop owner who had sold a gun to david wanted to tr- demonstrate how impossible it would have actually been to to use the gun that he sold to my brother as you know as a weapon to kill himself unless unless you had very long arms 
actually my brother as it happened did have long arms but you know but it was it was a rush job and I wasn't there so nobody had asked me nobody had um you know called me in evidence I wasn't a witness I hadn't been asked to make a statement about that and I'd already learned actually as a lawyer having done a bit of training before then having done a law degree and started my training to be a solicitor that you never answer questions that you're not that you're not asked you know only ever answer the question that is put to you so I you know and I felt well I mean they made you know I mean part of me actually was sort of holding on to well you know maybe at the time at that instant when David was maybe he'd been I know he'd been drinking he was three times over the alcohol uh, the drink drive limit um in this country when when he died um I know he'd been drinking but you know and he'd been he obviously had the gun but, you know but there was a possibility that he may have been trying to clean it or I don't know you know it, one never knows I wasn't there in that last instant and I yeah. You know, there was a possibility that he might have thought, oh, sh- shall I, shan't I, shall I, shan't I, shall I? And, you know, then when he's going seesawing backwards and forwards and then suddenly, bang, you know, it happens. Yeah. And we don't, I didn't know what was in his head. So I knew he'd had the conversations with Nick. Nick was absolutely raw with desperation, thinking that, you know, not only had his best friend died, but he f- felt for a while that he should kill himself too. Uh, so, oh, you know, yeah. and I thought, okay, absolutely not on my watch. You know, I'm going to love this guy back into life. I, you know, I, I, yeah. I can't bear. I, you know, it was, it was so hard to deal with David's death, yeah. but the thought of Nick also dying was you know, beyond any resources that I had at that time, or perhaps ever, you know, so we, we had a relationship, we fell in love, we took care of one another. Um, And that was actually quite private. And certainly, you know, I would have been very uh, reluctant to tell any, any, anybody about, about those, those private conversations, you know, but yeah, looking back well, on it, um, if anybody had asked yeah. me the question, you know, what what else do you yeah. know, Helen, or what specifically do you know about what have you been told by any of David's friends? I would have had to yeah. have answered, but nobody ever asked. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I think you and Nick, you you were healing mm-hmm. each other. I when I'm I'm reading your relationship, yeah. and. Um, I think Nick gave you strength and I think, I think you also gave him peace and vice versa. I, I could, and it's, it comes, it's a sounds, it comes across as a special yeah. relationship there. You wrote two paragraphs on, I, I've noted it here on page 145, which are beautiful. And do you mind reading those two paragraphs? Because you, you make reference to elephants and it, it was just okay. it's beautiful. Just one moment. Okay. I'd read that when an elephant looks as if it's dying, the other elephants in the herd do anything and everything they can to keep the elephant alive, bringing him or her food, 
spraying them with water, touching and stroking with their trunks, even trying to make love. There was that quality about us, determined that no one else was going to die. We had to make sure each other lived. That's certainly how I felt about it. I knew that for him, suicide was enough of an option for him to talk about it. And I wanted to obliterate that option from his world, for him to feel that life was worth living. I wanted him to open up to the world, travel, meet new people, escape the pressure from his parents, just for a while, as he was certain to go back there. It was in his blood, his lungs, his genes. He needed to go away long enough to find himself so that when he came back, he was choosing the farm from a wholehearted perspective. That's beautiful. <laughs> oh, uh, that's you. beautiful. Those moments in your work that I just, I, I sit back and go, oh, oh you know, so, some... so, so kind of, you know, it's, it's so strange. This, this book that I, you know, it felt at one point as if it was like my soul writing it. All I was having to do was kind of, turn up and open my laptop up and then the words came it was you know I, um, yeah. it was the funniest thing it was sort of like the first I spent a year writing drivel um so uh, and I was yeah. writing a heck of a lot about my mum being in a care home and that had been quite burdensome so I I, I probably wrote about a year's worth of of moaning and then somehow I managed to kind of tap into this this other seam, um, like a coal seam, like mining and finding the coal, and then it and then it just came. And then the most bizarre thing was that, um, you know, the the book would wake me up in in the night, like at three o'clock in the morning, and go, in chapter twenty one, you need to put this bit in. <laughs> so I, I had, yeah. a, I had a, um, a little notepad with you know and a pencil, so I just jot it down and then you know try and go back to sleep again but, but sometimes the book would go and uh, yeah I think it was thought that I probably um <coughs> sorry uh, you know needed to wake up and so I couldn't get back to sleep so then I had to get up and and, and write that bit before before I could sleep well my my writing friends and I we call that moaning first draft chorus <laughs> we all do it <laughs> it's okay it's <laughs> a great phrase so Helen between the first inquest and your father's court case to quash the decision. You see how your father is behaving. And that's when you come to the decision to write this book. This is in 1981. And I know as I'm reading, I kept asking myself, why did Helen want to write this book? Um, uh, Was it so she could heal? Um, You know, because to me, it's it's painful. It's 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 painful, and um, so I was wondering whether it's because you wanted to heal, and then you explain why, and I thought, okay, I understand. And do you want to explain to our listeners your reasons? For I know you've touched upon it a little bit, but your reasons why you wanted to write this book. Um, I think there were you know it's, it's complex. Um, I think I wanted to set the record straight to to the extent that um I think that my you know this this was David's 
probably this was David's choice and that my father, when he said it hadn't happened, it took that away from from David. And so I wanted to, to talk about that. But I I mean, I really I want to raise awareness of of um, of suicide and of the vulnerability, you know, the, of, of of young men and older men. Actually, the in the UK, um, currently the the biggest, you know, the, the sort of age range for, for men taking their own lives um, is more like 40 to, to 50. That's a big one. Oh, um, wow. Three And it's three times as, as many men take their lives as women. So, and it's so uh, kind of like not talked about. Um, in fact, I had to, uh, I haven't put this in the book, but, I, you know, I had to self-publish, yeah. although I've been published in the past by Penguin and Simon and & Schuster, you know, no, um, no traditional pub- publisher wanted to touch this book. I mean, I didn't try for years and years, but the the, the 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 toes I put into the water just, you know, I was rejected very firmly. Mm-hmm. Um, and even now, you know, trying to publicise the book, um, people, uh, the media are picking up on the story of my of my mum and what happened there, but um, they will not touch the whole issue of of suicide and I think it's almost like a fear that if you mention it somebody else you know somebody else will take their their life whereas I'm you know the reality is is that if if somebody is thinking about it it is a really good idea to ask them about it you know if if they if they are thinking about it and to open up that channel and to tell them how much you care about them and how much they matter to you you know I think that's the joy of a relationship it's the it's the magic um I mean and it's taken me a heck of a long time to to come to that realization because I thought that relationships needed to all to be about the structure you know do you need to have a mummy and a daddy and the children with within that structure whereas actually it's so much about the the weave of the relationship and showing your joy in someone else and telling them that they matter. You know, you matter because I matter. I matter because you matter. You know, yeah. so saying saying you're there for them. I'm. I'm. If you can be, say it. Uh, you know, I'm. I'm here for you. You know, let, let me let me listen and. So it's for those kinds of reasons that I've I've written this book, and I and I was brought up in a fat. I mean, I, you know, we lived in this extraordinary house that was built in sixteen eighty nine in William and Mary's time. It was had eight bedrooms and a roof terrace mm-hmm. and a pony paddock and blah blah blah. You know, <laughs> it's kind of there's a drawing of it in the British Museum. It's a beautiful house, and from the outside, we must have looked like. A kind of shiny red apple, you know. Um, my beautiful mum, my clever dad, you know, their children. But inside, the worms were eating away at it because we didn't talk about the stuff that, the stuff that matters. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've never been that good <laughs> at small talk in a kind of, you know, in in a sort of party situation. I'm I'm much more interested in talking about things where we connect with one another you know people's passions about what they what they yearn to do about what they love to do um as opposed to you know what happened 
at the doctors last week. I'm, I'm really not, I'm not very good at dealing with all that kind of stuff, but I do love to connect with people. And I, and I, and I think, you know, the thing that helps our, our society, our world now is pretty divided yeah. and, and broken in a way. And, you know, we've been set up as this side against that side, this, you know, if you believe this then i i will you know you are my opposition yeah and we need to find our way back to one another we need to reconnect and the only way we do that is actually through talking um yes. and being um and being having the courage to be vulnerable with one another and yeah. to and to tell our stories that you know we are we we that's how we connect we we tell stories about our lives we tell narratives about our lives and telling our stories listening to other people's stories listening to what's really going on for them yeah. is so key and so yeah I've kind of spent most of my life being a lawyer but now I've kind of I'm opening up to this whole new chapter which is about kind of the alchemy of connection and um that, and my book is the kind of platform. I, I haven't really, you know, it's like I only discovered that this is what I want to do with the rest of my life when I was writing the book and when I've been kind of getting it out there into the world. And that's, but that's what it seems to me is the purpose of me being on the planet at the moment is to, to talk about the alchemy of connection, to talk about the healing power of talking. Because we can pop pills, we can... Um, make you know drink ourselves senseless and that may provide a sort of temporary um relief or yeah. not. it doesn't last very long but you know yeah. and then sometimes we need more of that but yeah. it doesn't heal it just numbs or it just makes us feel something in a kind of artificial way we have to you know be brave actually and yeah. talk about our vulnerabilities and and uh, and reconnect I agree. And I think it was, uh, now bear with me, um, right now, months, days are just all one big mush. <laughs> okay. Well, aren't they just? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I believe it was the end of January, January 28th, was Mental Health Awareness Day. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, as you're saying, we have to talk about these difficult subjects, such as suicide. You know, and, and not just give it a day and especially, you know, isolation. You mentioned isolation. What are we all doing now? We're, we're isolated. Mm -mm -mm. You know? And I, one of the reasons why I, I want, I decided to start a podcast. is just because I thought I've got to have conversations with people. You know? We do. As we're, you're right. Because as being stuck in a box, because that's what it feels like. It's not healthy, right? So. Absolutely not. It, I mean, it, yeah. it it really isn't. We're in our own kind of, we're in our own prisons in a way. But then mm -hmm. I, you know, I think back to Nelson Mandela and then what he did in his prison and, you know, the amazing things actually he did and setting up yeah. a university there. And, you know, I mean, we can conjure things with our minds. We can, yes. thank goodness, talk to one another like you and I are talking now. You know, we yeah. there are so many ways, aren't there, you know? The phone, FaceTime, podcast, your wonderful podcast, you know, you. Zoom, all these 
ways we can, although we just can't hug. (laughs) (laughs) So taking it up, giving having a little bit of levity here. The other thing I liked with your book is you you can you bring in time and you bring in time because you're connecting it with events and real life events and you mention about lady diana and <laughs> prince charles getting married and i remember that i remember i boom, i was back to being a teenager because i was a lady diana fan oh god she i i love her you know i was lucky yeah. enough to meet her later on yeah and I remember racing, like talking about her wedding. I remember racing home from school. See, because you brought back a memory. And I raced home from school, and my mom and sister and I, we ate dinner in front of the TV, which was uh, <laughs> special. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and we watched her wedding. And I, and you mentioned about the black dress before she was married. Yes. And I remember when she wore that black dress and before there was Twitter, everyone was a Twitter about her and this black dress. Yes. And uh, I found that by mentioning these real life events, the reader gets a sense of time. And I live 10,000 kilometers away from you, but I've still managed to connect with your book. Yes. Thank you. And like you said, you did some, you did meet Lady Diana. So as a Lady Diana fan, can you please tell me how did that feel like or, or how did that come about? Okay, so this was in um, this was in 1991 and I had just had my first daughter who is called Unity. Um, it always tickles me pink actually because when, you know, when governments are kind of changing, they're always calling for Unity and I'd say, go on, darling. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I, I digress. So, uh, That's okay. <laughs> so she was a baby, um, and I, you know, so and I was I'd put on a bit of weight in my first pregnancy. So I, I had this amazing eighties sort of nineties power jacket. Uh, uh, it was bright magenta silk with a sort of dark black collar, massive shoulders. Yeah, um, yeah. and before and so and I at the time I was actually the chair of the management committee of a charity called. Um, the National Council for One Parent Families. So I I got this position and we had this uh, really mega charity event organised alongside Bernardo's, who's a much bigger charity, whose patron was was Princess Diana. And we we put on an opera at the Coliseum in London with Bryn Turfell singing in the Barber of Seville. So it was mega. Yeah. Um, and we were the kind of like poor cousins, you know, National Council for Parent Families. There, were, there was just the great and good and glitzy on the Bernardo side. Although we had yeah. very clever women in our, you know, uh, journalists and authors and people like Marina Warner and C- Celia Brayfield. Um, uh, anyway, um, so this event was happening and um, I was, so I kind of got myself ready, put my jacket on, hides a multitude of sins, eh? And, <laughs> and then said goodbye to my baby and, and just held her against me. And she, so she vomited up on, 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 on my shoulder. And they do, you know? Yeah. Um, so, oh no. So anyway, I handed her back to my husband, 
cleaned it off as best I could. But you know that, I don't know if you've ever had that, but I think it's quite a common experience. You kind of turn your head to one side, don't you? You just get the faintest whiff of, of babies. Baby vomit. <laughs> so, okay, so, so in the, so after... So uh, after the first half of, of the Barber of Seville, then we kind of, re- we, there was a reception and Princess Diana was there. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the chair of the, of the, uh, of the, of Bernardo saying, right, okay, hey, you, Helen, you need to meet Princess Diana. She wants to meet you. And I went, no, she doesn't, she doesn't want to meet me. You know, it's all these other yeah. people. They said, yes, 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 come on. So I, I went to meet her and she was, a goddess okay there's just there's no getting away from it she's tall she's gorgeous she radiated light I mean there was something about her which was so magical I'm really not making this up it was like meeting a light being in a you know in a in the body of Princess Diana and um and so I kind of went to the front of the queue, all these people wanting to talk to her. And she turned to me and she and she said, isn't it, isn't it wonderful when you get up off your backside after you've been watching an opera? <laughs> and I, I went, oh, Princess, backside, what do I do now? <laughs> so so anyway, I kind of, I witted on about something, I think. And, and, and But she, you know, she, one thing that often gets missed out about Princess Diana is how well prepared she was. She knew where I lived. She knew when my baby was born, what she was called. She knew a lot about me. Um, and she knew a lot about, other, you know, and that I was, I was by no means a big player in that room, but she was, yeah. she was amazing. I, I think, you know, of all the people who've been on the planet to teach us about communication, Princess yeah. Diana is right up there because she communicated from the heart she was also you know a little bit funny and um she could just connect with anybody whoever it was she would be able to reach out so i yeah i i just i got a picture of of me my our meeting um you can't actually see the baby sick on it i (laughs) but you know and we were kind of intent in conversation and uh i just I was really, I didn't even notice that somebody was taking pictures, but uh, I was so yeah. enraptured by her. So thank you, Universe, for giving me that opportunity. Oh, that is a great opportunity. I'm glad, I'm glad you shared it. I really am. Because <laughs> uh, we do, we need, we need moments like that. You know? yeah. In your book, you mentioned Second Secrets. Um, and uh, this, you know, and I can see the theme. Because your mother, Monica, has a secret that she took to the grave. Mm. And when I finished reading this, I thought I could see a theme here. And the theme is we have to start talking. We, mm. You know, it's more than 15-minute sound bites. It's more than tweets. It's more than Instagram posts. We have to start having a real conversation. Yes. And I feel, and you mentioned about, for example, your mother. And I know my mother was born in 1928 mm-hmm. and you call them the silent generation. Yeah. Because I know with my mother, there were just certain things a woman did not talk about. Absolutely. You just, you know, mm-hmm. you do not talk about. So can you share with your listeners 
I don't, I don't want to come out. I'm trying to come out politely. I don't want to, I don't want to say, can you tell us what your mother's secret was? I don't <laughs> want to do that. Right? But So polite. But yeah. Yeah. But just, well, people, people can research it anyway, can't they? I mean, it's, you know, I, yeah, yeah I mean, so I, and I, this blindsided me. I had, I had not even an inkling of an inkling that this was going yeah. to happen. Um, my, my mom had uh, gone into a, a care home. She fought so long not to go into care. She hated anybody looking after her. But she went into a care home um, in West Wittering in, in Sussex, mm-hmm. not far away from us, on the um, 13th of December. And very sadly, she died on the 21st, so only eight days later. And uh, when I was when I'd taken her to the care home, I was kind of helping her sort through her things. And on the top of her papers, um, mm-hmm. she had this sort of she had a big bundle of papers called her memoir. And I, yeah. I still have not read. I haven't brought myself to read this yet. I will, yeah. but not yet. Anyway, there's a handwritten envelope on there. And um, I read the first sentence of it when she was in the loo. And it said, um, or should I say bathroom? Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Okay, and it said, um, "I, I am, I am different. I'm not as other people." Um, but God, it, it went on to say, "But God has made me this way." And so I was thinking, "Oh my!" Anyway, then she came out of the of the bathroom, so I I hurriedly put the envelope away and didn't look at it again. And and then, sadly, she died. And then, you know, a few days after that, um, I was. Mm-hmm. I was, well, it was like probably a couple of couple of weeks after that. I was looking, I was getting ready for work. The papers now were back in 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 uh, my flat with Tim, and um, picked up the envelope and started reading. Mm-hmm. And I came to a word, and I went, yeah. "What?" Yeah. And Tim <laughs> was passing and said, "Is anything wrong?" And I, I said, "What? Do, what do you think that says, Tim?" And um, he said, and it's quite hard to decipher my mum's writing because her L almost looks like a kind of upside down J. But anyway, he looked at it and he said, well, I think that says lesbians. And I said, I think that's what it says as well. And So she'd written on this envelope that uh, I don't, you know, I don't know how other lesbians cope. And that and then she talked about the affliction, which is still desperately so you know poor mum um about the affliction of of being gay Uh, and then she named women that she'd had relationships with i mean you know on this envelope so she'd gone to her grave and then she'd left this to be found basically by me i suppose to afterwards so yeah i mean whoa so, so one of the people that she'd named um, was Gwen, who was an old family friend. And I'd known her for, well, decades. I'd known her ever since I was little. Um, and uh, I, um, so I, I, you know, I ended up, I contacted, Gwen had helped me a lot with my mum going to a care home. She was a nurse. She was a matron at Doncaster Royal Infirmary. And uh, I, so I contacted her and said, you know, mum's actually left a, an envelope and I'd really like to talk to you about what she what she said to me. And Gwen responded 
by email to say, Helen, I've been expecting you to talk to me about this all my life. I'm very happy. Wow. I'm very happy to answer any questions you may have. Yeah. So, so then, you know, it all unfolded and, you know, I, I mean, gosh, you know, I've got three children who are young adults now and more open-minded people, you know, be, it'd be hard to find. So when, when I told them about it, that, <laughs> well, actually we often just burst into, burst into laughter because it just seemed so surreal. I, you know, I, I mean, I wish I had been able to behave in a more elegant way, but I just laughed because it was just extraordinary. Yeah. And they laughed too. Yeah. And they said, oh, but mum, that's so cool. We've got a gay granny. Yeah. We've got a gay granny. Wow, cool. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, so their reaction, you know, was very open. Uh, I wish she'd have known actually how open we'd have been. Um, but it was a massive shock to my auntie Judy, her younger mm, sister, yeah. Um, because not only had my mum kept the secret from her, but Gwen had kept the secret from Judy because Gwen first met my mum at Judy's 12th birthday party. So, um, I mean, Judy was reeling and actually I was, we were really reeling because we, you know, we thought, did everybody else know? And we didn't know or, you know, what had, what had happened? So, um, in a, even now, as a part of me that thinks, I don't know, mum's just going to come through the door and, oh, it's all a joke. Because <laughs> it, it just, it seems so extraordinary. I mean, the, um, we used to go down on holiday to, uh, to, we had a holiday, my parents had a holiday cottage in Cornwall. And just this weekend, I've had several messages from people I know down there. And, you know, they're, they're still in a state that they're now finding out about it. And they're still in a state of, disbelief about it because my parents were a big part of their community too and nobody guessed you know we had we just didn't know just didn't know well it's it's just I I feel sad for her Mm. that she couldn't come out but I understand why she didn't knowing my mother's generation okay she wrote down she left her memoir so in a way, I think she knew she couldn't come out while she was alive, but she had her memoir, and it's and I, I I'm sure she wanted you to find out. So, mm-hmm. in passing, in death, who she felt most comfortable being could finally be. I don't want to say exposed, but be acknowledged. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So now, now I'm kind of talking a a little. Well, now the book's just coming out into the world. My, you know, this baby is just coming out into the world. The, um, in a way, you know, Joe, I feel that she get she left me this gift because if if my book was just about, well, just I don't know quite why I said that, but you know, if it was about David only alone, um nobody would be touching it with a barge pole um they would be avoiding it you know and and it would not have got the 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 you know the the publicity it has but the fact that my mum came out and the fact that I've included that in the book that's where you know the papers and uh radio stations and you know different media are are focusing so there's a piece coming out in a magazine over here called Prima on the 25th of February um, and also a piece about secrets 
which may well be in the Daily Mail. Um, so they're picking up that story. They're not picking up the David story, but the more the book gets read as a whole, and there's a theme yeah. just as you identify in it about the importance of talking, then people yeah. will also look at the um, at the at the suicide aspect as well. So I, actually, I feel like my mother. I don't know whether it's conscious or unconscious. She was a she was a very deep woman. It was very hard to to read, you know, read what was really going on with her, as you can tell. But I feel mm -hmm. that she's given me this gift um, that I could wrap up with in my book and then give my book out into the world because of, because a wider audience I hope will read it. And and your YouTube channel, huh? it, it's 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 about having the conversation i'm just flipping through my notes here um because i need notes okay, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. yeah hello it's better to talk right. your youtube channel that's exactly what we need to do we need to well, do you know, it's funny i think i must have started off my youtube channel about the time that you started off your wonderful podcasts um Aww. and and i was prompted to do so by um a writing coach that i that i brought on board just to kind of get help get me focused um, called Gabriella Blandy, and um, she's and I had a bit of a disaster actually. I'll confess this to you and your listeners um, about publicity um, to start yeah. off with, because the publishers got a um, recommended a publicist to me, and uh, she she did she you know prepared this brief, and she I read it and I went oh my I can't do this, and in, she got three things completely wrong. She said instead of a entry-level Russian shotgun she called it a revolver which is all more James Bond and a bit glamorous she got the name name yeah. of my father wrong she got you know other facts wrong and I thought and when I said you know this is you've made all these mistakes she she said well that you know I'm worried about the about the, your extreme reaction Helen and and whether or not you have the mental resilience to be able to get this book out into the world and I thought I might you know I've run that <laughs> as you can tell I said all sorts of things which I can't possibly share on my on your channel but okay I think that's rubbish thank, right? you, thank you very much for that, that interpretation <laughs> yeah that's it that's exactly what I said yeah. and uh and my writing coach said well you know get get out there Helen create your own YouTube channel and then you can tell the stories and it it's almost yeah. like a kind of oh, I don't know how, you know like a javelin and I'm throwing it in a true way or I wish I could think of a better metaphor, actually, but it's, you know, it's from my heart and soul to yours, and there isn't any interference in it. I can I can tell you what actually happened, as opposed to somebody interpreting what happened and then making mistakes. So, yeah, hello, it's better to talk, and um, it's free to subscribe. I would love you, love, love, love you to to come along to it and uh, and and listen to all your listeners you are extremely welcome and it, you know it's yeah. it's uplift i hope it's uplifting because we need to have fun and we need to have joy and light in our lives as well so we yeah yes let's talk about the tough stuff but also yeah. let's yeah. i don't know let's play a little bit and let's uh let's experience the joy because once when you experience the tough stuff it's almost like um is it Khalil Gibran says the more suffering you have, you kind of get scooped out inside. So the more you can fill up with with joy, 
Um, so it's about yeah. experiencing all the feels and, you know, human, humanity, human feelings, human experience in all its entirety. So would love you to join. Well, I know I'm already subscribed. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, and I find with you doing your YouTube channel, when you were describing it, the word that jumped to my mind, which I wrote down here, was authenticity oh. by having you do it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. How do you feel now? I mean, the book's mm. out. Do you feel a great relief? What are you hoping readers take away after reading your book? Um, well, I hope that they will be uh, strengthened and get some courage, um, you know, in dealing with their own life and kind of stepping into the arena, as Brené Brown talks about it. Um, I don't know. You know, your listeners will be kind of familiar with her. She's, I think, another goddess in the in the planet. But you know, she talks a lot about mm-hmm. um, the importance of of kind of getting out there and talking about stuff. So I I hope it will encourage people to talk. I hope it will be a kind of talking point. Um, I, you know, it's it. I know it's a powerful read, um, and I've had a lot of people say. I had a message from a friend today who's a QC. And she said, well, this book is amazing, but I haven't been able to put it down. So I didn't sleep last night. And now I haven't done all the chores that I'm supposed to have done for the weekend. So it's amazing. (laughs) And also, I wish I'd known about how powerful it was because I could have set aside some different time. So, it, yeah, I I think it will make you feel something. I hope that it will connect you to your humanity. Um, I think it's a lot of people say it's quite relatable. So uh, it's about, you know, living life as a human being on this planet and, and getting what we can out of it. And being, to me, more understanding yeah. of people around us. That's, right? that's Thank you for adding that, Joe. because that, mm-hmm. you know, we all have our crosses to bear, our demons to grapple with. And, I, you know, if I didn't know that before, I was a family lawyer for and mediator for 35 years. I certainly know it now. You know, a lot of people are carrying huge things around with them so yeah let's be let's people often say let's be kind with one another i think it's it's about gentleness actually it's about being you know allowing ourselves to be gentle and soft and listening and um and absolutely loving our our own selves to bits you know that's the thing that we also need to do is kind of fall fall back in love with ourselves because that's the person that we're with all the time um is there anything you would like to add helen um where can people find you on the social oh gosh all right so i am um helen p garlic p for p does that make sense but helen p garlic on um, twitter and instagram um and linkedin helen garlic and i'm just about to get my website out into the world and i'm helen helengarlic.com um, on that I actually nabbed that um three years ago and it's been taking me such a long time to get around to doing this you see the the daft thing about all of this said she sounded rather northern is that um I'm actually quite introverted <laughs> and I, so I you know I kind of go out into the world but then I have to kind of come back and then hide under the duvet for a little bit 
there's times when I, I sign up for things and then when it comes around, I'm like, oh my God, why did I do this? <laughs> That's right. I really should be cutting my toenails now. So yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. So I, I've had, I mean, my website designer is the most patient woman on the universe. I think with any luck, the end of February, that, that'll be out. So you can find me on HelenGarlic.com. But, um, and uh, yeah, you know, there's all sorts of possibilities happening, but um, you can find me there and, you know let's share this journey together and thank you so much joe for the, this has been a wonderful opportunity i love talking to you and and to your listeners out there oh thank you thank you for for i'm glad the connection work i worked that that's good and i i'm you know it's special for me too because when i started this podcast i never thought i'd be speaking with authors from the uk and um book promoters from the uk so it's 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 so cool. Okay. <laughs> and that's what we need more of in our lives. I think, yeah. I think lots of cool yeah. things to happen. Yeah. yeah. I, I would send that yeah. blessing to everybody. Lots of cool things for you. Okay, Helen. Well, have a good, I, it's probably evening now. Have a thank good you. evening. I will. And uh, thank you so much. And love and light to you all. Bye-bye, Helen. Bye.